Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. We live in a world where the term fake news is well entrenched into the common vernacular, adding to the conspiracy theories and false reporting that spread like wildfire across social media and permeate into the mainstream. We now also confront the emergence of deep fakes, where digital manipulation can make it look like people are saying words they have in fact never uttered. All this dissemination of misinformation is one of the greatest challenges to democracy in the modern age. The absence of trusted information has deep implications for every area of public policy, particularly as the world struggles to emerge from the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic and encourage vaccination take-up. My guest today is an expert in all this and so much more. She is an Associate Professor at the University of Oxford, a sociologist who investigates fakes and what paying attention to fakes and fakery can teach us about the so-called real in contemporary society. She has produced a 10-episode podcast on the confusing phenomenon of genuine fakes, things that are both real and fake at the same time. Patricia Kingori, welcome to the podcast. Now, what a fascinating topic for your research. I should mention, in the interests of full disclosure, that your research is funded by the Wellcome Trust, of which I've just commenced as chair. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about your research project and what on earth is a genuine fake? Firstly, my project is really about this idea that we're living in an era that's defined as a kind of crisis of authenticity, right? Where barely a day goes by where we're not sort of questioning some area or we're told to question some area as being kind of real or fake. And these are institutions, these are people, ideas. And I'm really interested in paying attention to these fakes and thinking about, you know, what can we learn from these fakes? Why are we so concerned about fakes all of a sudden? Is it all of a sudden? Who are the people involved? Where do fakes come from? And I actually think rather than ignoring fakes, if we pay attention to them, they can really teach us about things. So the podcast I produced was really about trying to open up this discussion around things being real and fake at the same time to a whole group of different people who I wouldn't normally have met and thought with. So yeah, as you've mentioned, the idea of a genuine fake is something that's both real and fake at the same time. A classic example is some, is a synthetic diamond, which I had to learn quite a lot about. So a synthetic diamond is a diamond that has exactly the same chemical properties as a natural diamond, but it's created in a lab. 
it's very difficult to detect. So it's real in the sense that its chemical structure is that of a diamond, but it's considered fake because it's not mined. And so there, there are loads of examples like this. And I was just really fascinated by what can we learn about who gets to say something's real or fake just by using some of these examples. So the podcast really explores that. Probably the most famous use of the phrase fake in contemporary times has been attached to fake news, and it was Donald Trump that we used to hear that from constantly. In fact, he used to use it to deride anybody who simply didn't agree with him. If we move from things like synthetic diamonds to the world of ideas, what do you think the difference is between what Donald Trump was claiming was fake news and what you would consider as fake news? I think discussing fake news, to me and my interpretation of that, is important because actually what we're getting to the heart of is power. Who gets to decide that something's real or fake? And I think what Donald Trump was touching on when he was discussing fake news was a kind of prevailing sense amongst certain groups that the news we have doesn't really touch on what they consider to be real or that there's something else that's going on. For all of his faults, every now and again, just through randomness more than anything, Donald Trump was able to sometimes touch on some of these feelings that are prevailing. And I think what we can see from a sense of marginalisation or that the, the news doesn't really represent what people believe is it points us to places where we need to think harder about really how is knowledge produced and whose voices are heard? So, I mean, to take it out of something quite contentious, we've got in the UK a real north-south divide in terms of how people think about the news and who the news is for. So people in the north think, you know, the news really just represents things that people in the south, mostly London, think and care about. The news isn't really representing their real concerns or the things that they really care about. So in those sorts of situations, it's really easy for them to think, well, this concern that's been presented in the media isn't real. It's a fake concern because it's got nothing to do with the things we're thinking about. That kind of marginalisation from what's seen as the seats of power or who gets to decide what's important is really often at the heart of these concerns around fake news and the way that people think about fake news. You know, and another example is at the beginning of COVID, nurses were really sort of on Twitter and social media saying, well, this is fake news around the allocation and the access to PPE. You know, the government was saying it was available and nurses were saying it isn't available. And so there was a sense in which often fake news can give us access into where people think that then their voices aren't being heard and where they're not being represented. Now, of course, that's open to political manipulation, as we've seen with Donald Trump, to shut down ideas, to stop people from talking, and also to present yourself as being on the side of the marginalised, when in fact, at the bottom of that is your own kind of political agenda. And we're seeing that quite a lot as well, the way that fake news is deployed as a kind of political weapon to stop certain groups from talking or to stop a full discussion of things. As someone who really values facts and hearing the truth, I feel a bit of frustration because a story like at the start of a pandemic, do nurses have the personal protective equipment they need? It seems to me that someone ought to be able to go out and verify the objective truth of that. Either the masks and the gowns and the gloves and everything else are there or they're not. Do you feel that frustration when we're talking about this fake news phenomenon? Yes, and I do think actually that the inability sometimes for governments to say, 
or for people in institutions to say, we're working on it, we're, we're trying, it's not there yet. The inability for them to say that, but instead to say, this thing is done or we've finished that or you've got the equipment that you need. When those things are done, the kind of the knock-on effects in terms of people's trust of those very same institutions when it is, it's discovered not to be the case is so far-reaching that it's frustrating because you think, well, why don't you just say, you know, it's a pandemic. We've never, we've never experienced anything like this. We've tried our best. We're doing our best. And we, we're going to get you those things that you need. Often institutions really overlook how much the public are actually prepared to engage in nuance and engage in things not being perfect. And this enormous pressure that's often felt to present control is often the very thing that can undo trust because people feel, well, hang on, that's not right. It's a little bit like when you tell a child something and then they realise that actually you're not telling the truth about that thing. After that, it becomes really hard to sort of backpedal. I'm not saying the public are children. I'm just saying actually that we're much more open to things, especially in times of crisis, not being straightforward than often we're given credit for. Who gets to decide what is real and what is fake? I mean, is it just a matter of perspective or is it something else? What's real and what is fake was often seen to be the domain of certain powerful institutions, right, to tell us, this is real, this is fake. You're legitimate, you're not legitimate. This is true, this is false. And for a long time, we were really happy to devolve all of our thinking about that to institutions, to churches, to schools, to governments. And we've seen there were some real problems in that. So on the one hand, those institutions gave us a kind of sense of surety and security. But at the same time, we've seen that actually that can be manipulated and that's a, an in- enormous source of power. So along comes the internet and we're able to get access to things and information that in one hand is really helpful. And on the other hand, is it's really dangerous because that's open to all sorts of manipulation. So I think that the idea that what's true and false is open to perspective is quite dangerous. But at the same time, shaking up those boundaries isn't always a bad thing. You know, for a really long time, we were told, you know, you can only be a real insert X, Y, or Z if you were like this. And if you weren't those things, then you were fake. We've seen so many examples of that not being true. It's a really interesting time for us to be living through. And as I think as a group, as a society, communities, we have to decide how comfortable we are or not with some of these questions and where these questions are taking us. I don't necessarily have the answer to all of these things, but I think part of my research is really trying to understand, you know, what we can learn from fakes and why do fakes exist. Let's just take the example of baby formula. Baby formula remains one of the most faked food items in the world. When I first found this sow, I was really kind of curious, quite naive about this, actually, because you know, why, given that the vast majority of women who give birth produce breast milk, does there need to be fake baby formula? But again, this goes to the heart of my research. When we pay attention to the fakes, it gives us insights and signals to blind spots that we didn't know really exist. What we know now is that an increasing number of women need baby formula because they need to go out to work for economic reasons and they need to go out to work sooner. So it's no longer waiting until your children are on solids. It's, you know, weeks, months after you've given birth. So this has driven a huge demand for baby formula. And in fact, in the UK, Australia and America, it's, it's, it's one of the most kind of, you know, they're huge 
baby formula stealing rings. It's one of the most stolen items in the UK. Often it's in supermarkets behind the counter where you, you know, next to the cigarettes now. So these items are stolen and they're sold on to poorer women who can't afford baby formula. And in, in addition to that, those items are faked. So when we look at something really innocuous like baby formula, we get to see the way in which actually there are these gaps, the demand for things that aren't met, those things are then met by either fake versions or criminal versions of that thing. And it really asks us, you know, what are we not doing here? Why there is a demand for these things and why these things are faked? So when we pay attention to the fake, it really forces us to think about the areas that we wouldn't ordinarily think. And it guides us to areas and to people who aren't represented. You know, the fact that this is really involving women and women's economic needs. There aren't spaces at work where women can breastfeed their children. There aren't spaces where they can even express milk or store that milk. Really drives the demand for this baby formula. And the demand isn't met by supply, at least supply that people can afford. So I think, you know, really paying attention to the fake, I think is something that's really important for us to do. That's something that we can learn from. And I think rather than just kind of dismissing these things as not being particularly valuable and fakes as rubbish, I think they can really teach us about parts of our society that we really don't know much about. And just to be clear, fake baby formula is, you know, obviously there are companies that make baby formula and they've put it together to provide nutrition to babies on a scientific basis. People then mix that with other things, do they, to create a cheaper product, but then they sell it to women at basically full price or if not full supermarket price, certainly more than it's cost them to put it together. Yeah, in some cases, or sometimes they sell it to women much cheaper with the women not entirely being clear what's inside of the product that they're buying. But what's the, the appeal is the price. Um, so, you know, these things are incredibly expensive. And so what we have here is a, a kind of a market, an economy that's been driven by essentially a complete blind spot to what it takes to have childbearing women in the workforce. So when we pay attention to the fake, it actually forces us to take seriously these areas that we're actually not really thinking about. And can you give us some examples of how you've seen fake news move into the mainstream and influence how people think and make decisions about who they're going to vote for or ideas they're going to support or things they're going to do? You know, I think one of the things that has been quite shocking to lots of people, even to watch as it unfolded, was the kind of claims around Brexit and the NHS that, you know, us leaving the EU would save lots of money for the NHS, millions and millions of pounds. It's almost pointless saying how many millions we were going to be saved because that number was completely constructed and faked. And I think no matter what you feel about Brexit, whether you think it was a right thing or a wrong thing, I think the idea of kind of that level of manipulation and how that became something that was repeated several times and in mainstream news outlets was a kind of source of horror and a sense that actually... This is something that lots of people believed because the work that was done into faking that story, the the number of times it was repeated, and then also the number of times the the news outlets repeated that story and and accepted it as, as fact. And that's just one example of how political parties, all persuasions in a sense, are using these kinds of stories and to manipulate voters, um, manipulate populations. And 
this isn't at the level of a singular state. I mean, one of the things that's been very interesting is the it's the kind of global nature and the ways in which all sorts of governments are involved in in producing stories that support a particular view and the fact-checking and the concerns about the fallout are considered. So you have a government that's supported a particular story, the NHS and Brexit. People find out that happens not to be the case, but we've voted Fast forward several months later, that very same government is saying we need you to stay inside. We need you to stay at home. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And people are thinking, well, how do we know? (laughs) You know, how do we know that this is the case? And, you know, there's a kind of trust deficit. These stories have consequences. And the consequences are real in terms of people's health, in terms of their belief and trust in science. And so when we really look and take fakes seriously, what we learn is actually the long-term consequences of those things, the reasons often why people are prepared to believe sometimes the most preposterous things is because there is a complete deficit of trust. And I think that's really important. I guess I'm keen to get to what's different now because people would say, in relation to politicians and overblown election <laughs> promises uh, that it's been ever thus, you know, that a, that a political party campaigning in the 1950s when the only way of getting your message out was TV, radio or very localised campaigning, putting leaflets in people's post boxes, that even back then you know, politicians could campaign on something that wasn't true and could get elected on the basis of something that wasn't true. And when it, you know, their election promises weren't implemented, that created a trust deficit. What do you think is different now, worse now? I mean, you, you've you sort of taken us to the democratisation of access to information through the internet so we no longer have to just accept if someone says X is the case in the newspaper, you can go online and check whether or not that's a fact. You know, people can do that and yet that same democratisation has created an environment where conspiracy theories and fake nonsense can prosper. So clearly that is different. But how do you think it comes together? What's different now about overblown political claims compared with the past? That's a really interesting question. I mean, some historians will say it's not particularly different in some respects. When I speak about the kind of crisis of authenticity, you know, lots of historians will say, well, you know, let's look at the Third Reich. I mean, that was a complete crisis of authenticity. But it's also important to look at the consequences of of that kind of level of fake news and propaganda, as it was, you know, we often refer to fake news as propaganda. What's different now is the role that technology and the role that social media is playing in the dissemination of these types of fake news, and in particular, the kind of siloing that's going on. So what we know is, for example, if I'm concerned about vaccinating my child and I go online to YouTube and I put in vaccination of children, I'm more likely to receive lots more information and false information about vaccination of children because of the way that the algorithms work. So I'm not going to get a full range of information. I will just get kind of confirmation bias almost, information that is of a particular view. So what we're not getting is cross-conversations about issues. We're having people in community groups 
online who are only getting access to one type of information that confirms a particular view. And so when those groups come together to talk, no one's coming from a position where they are prepared even to budge even an inch on their views because they're so entrenched and they've received so much confirmation of that particular position through the way that these algorithms work, through the way that these social media groups, community online groups work. So there isn't really a space for a lot of discussion. And so that's why sometimes it can be really difficult when these two groups get together and somebody says, you know, for for example, after the George Floyd killing, I mean, believe it or not, there were lots of people online who were saying the video was fake. This wasn't a real video. So lots of lots of people, this is completely incredulous. How, how could that even possibly be something that people would entertain as an idea? But I think you to step back and look at the kind of rabbit hole that some of these kinds of social media groups can send people down and how you look at one thing and before you know it, you're already thinking the earth is flat or that George Floyd's killing was faked because of how these algorithms work and how they funnel people into a particular way of thinking. So by the time there's time for discussion on this, people are at completely diametrically opposed positions and cannot meet because they're using facts from both of those positions that nobody actually recognises as valid. That's something that's quite different. And that's something that we haven't really felt to this extreme on a global level. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Is there a particular kind of person that is more susceptible to being targeted with false information or fakes or is more susceptible to getting down this rabbit hole that you talk about where the algorithm keeps serving you up a slightly more extreme version of the last thing you looked at. So you you start off inquiring about George Floyd's killing and, and somehow you end up with the extreme propaganda that it was faked. Are there people who are more susceptible to that? Yes, I mean, what we know is, and there's been some really fantastic research on this, I'm thinking about Heidi Larson's group at the London School of Hygiene in particular, that women, older people and minority groups are more likely to be the target of this misinformation and false information in the same way that the algorithms and trolls that mean that women politicians are more likely to receive really unpleasant messages and they're targeted by that. That's not an accident. Those algorithms exist that target women, and that's been proven. Women, older people, and minority communities are more likely to receive misinformation and false information. And if you go back to the baby formula example that I gave, that's often because these are groups who are more likely to try and seek out information, or they don't feel that the information that's available is there for them. So if we take the example of the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, I think it's just been over a month since there's been an official government statement that it's safe for pregnant women to be vaccinated. 
This has been over a year since we were told that the vaccine was going to be available, just over six months since the official rollout of the vaccine has begun. So in that time, there's been no targeted, no official statement to alleviate the concerns of half the population around what that vaccine is going to do to them, their bodies, their unborn child. So what we've had is millions of women in droves, thousands going online to try and find out information precisely about this. Now, what does this vaccine mean for me? And those women are susceptible to precisely what we were saying. They go online innocently looking for something, and then before you know it, they've got all this information that's either confusing or or putting them off and giving them real concerns about the vaccine. Because the people who are addressing those concerns are often the first people to be giving them misinformation. They have a particular agenda. And so this is really asking us questions. And when we think about fakes, it's really asking us, why is it taking so long? Why to really think about half of the population, what that population needs. You know, women should not be something that's an afterthought. The bodies of women should be something that the rollout of vaccines are considered from the very beginning, that not something that is considered afterwards. And that that vacuum of information is filled and often it's sometimes filled with rubbish, you know, and things that are really concerning. And I've seen some of these messages and they're really concerning. At the very least, they've kind of put women off or delay women being vaccinated. At the worst, they stop women altogether from being vaccinated for something which the government has deemed safe. So, you know, what we have is an absence of information that's filled with something. You know, people don't just wait until governments are ready to give them information about stuff. They go online and they find out about it. You know, when we think about the groups who are more susceptible to receiving false information. These are often the people who are underserved. Then the knowledge isn't produced specifically for them. And they're kind of blind spots as to who should be receiving information. And so that's why for me, I think, you know, when we think about fakes, again, is going back to what is this signaling, you know, us to do and to think about why does this exist? And really taking seriously that this can actually point us to places where we can change policies and we can really double down attention on groups that need that information. Looking specifically at the online material about the vaccines and about the course of the COVID pandemic, how much of what's online is innocent rubbish, if I can use that terminology, as opposed to what is deliberately manipulated? I mean, is there deliberate manipulation of people who know what they're putting online about the vaccine is not true, but they are doing it anyway? Yes, I think that absolutely happens. And I think that there is a kind of a spectrum between the stuff that's just rubbish or simply rubbish and harmless and actually the sort of things that are driven by a kind of political agenda to either destabilise vaccine rollouts to promote one type of vaccine over another. Increasingly, we're seeing this along kind of government and state lines. So for lots of people, it isn't a coincidence that the Russian vaccine is called, you know, the Sputnik V. Lots of this is harking back to a kind of Cold War politics and but using vaccines, you know. So we've got all of these different vaccine candidates. They're all, in a sense, competing for governments to have them introduced as part of their vaccine programs. There are people's lives at stake, but there's also money at stake. One of the first volunteers for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine 
was Dr. Alyssa Granato in Oxford. So this was at the stage of the initial human trials of the vaccine? Yeah, and um, she was one of the first volunteers. And, you know, very brave thing to do. And she was very happy to do it and was sort of pictured being vaccinated and off she went. And I think this happened on a, a Thursday and she woke up to the news on the Friday that she died, um, <laughs> unbeknownst to her. So she, she tried to online to say, well, actually, thanks for all the concerns and well wishes and condolences to my parents, but I'm actually alive and well. And this story just would not go away. And she has issued videos. People say, well, how do we know it's not a deep fake? She's tried online to say she's still alive. People say, well, how do we know that this isn't a government conspiracy? We've had government officials got involved to say, you know, this is a fake story. You know, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? They would say that. So um, this is a kind of a story that really shows us how difficult it is when, when these things take hold, how hard it can be to dissuade people of that, because all the mediums that we would use to give people confidence are the very same mediums that can be manipulated. And so even though she's alive and well and going about her business, there are still some people who actually think she's, 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 you know, she's a victim of this government's conspiracy that, you know, the vaccine doesn't work. It's crazy. But there is a sense in which, even though this is a story that isn't true, there's a sense in which there's a different type of question we need to ask. Is this something that's plausible? Because actually, increasingly, the idea of focusing on something that's true is actually less interesting to most people. What about something that is actually plausible? So is it plausible that something really untoward could have happened to this this volunteer and that this story was covered up because the government were really interested in rolling out this vaccine no matter what? To most people, it will take probably far more organisational skills and, <laughs> and an infrastructure than the government has at its disposal. But to some people, these are the kind of things that governments do. They cover up bad things that happen to its populations. They've got an agenda. This vaccine was going to happen no matter what. And, you know, this woman is just, you know, a victim of this kind of the way that the government wants to operate. And so I think when we look at these stories, actually, what they tell us is, again, we're talking about the trust deficit, but also how do we get across a story that's real to people? How do we use the same methods that people use when they're faking? How do we actually make people believe something's real? And that's a big challenge now. How do we dissuade people of of ideas that aren't true? Is there any evidence that that story was deliberately manipulated, the fake story about the death of the woman who was in the human trial? Yeah, I mean, that story was really picked up by, for for example, Russian news outlets. It was shared globally across lots of different um, news outlets by lots of alt-right groups, anti-vax groups. So there was a kind of not only a deliberate manipulation of that story, but actually a real incentive to disseminate that story, you know, even when Dr. Bernardo did, did actually try to, given the the methods at her disposal, did try to say, actually, you know, it's not true. That's an incredible story. But let's leave the world of fakes now and just turn to talking about you and your background. When did you first notice boys and girls were treated differently? When was your first experience with being perhaps characterised differently simply because you were a girl? 
I'm not entirely sure I really realised that until I was an adult, actually. And because I've had a quite particular upbringing, I grew up in St Kitts, an island in the Caribbean, which I think is one of the smallest islands, smallest countries in the world, and it's a tiny island. And also has one of the, it's one of the most gender equitable countries in the world, right? So especially around education, boys and girls have the same levels of attainment, access to education, resources. So I grew up with men sort of cooking, cleaning, washing. I didn't ever think of that as being in any way remarkable, worthy of praise or not. You know, it was just one of those things. It was just part of life. And then I also, I grew up in a single parent household. So I think I'm one of the fourth generations in my family to be brought up without a, a father in the house. And so when I left St. Kitts, that was my life. And I went to an all-girls school. So I went to an all-girls school in a single-parent household. So I didn't have any sense of women not being able to do things. I think it was only really when I maybe when I went to university and then maybe went into the working world, it suddenly struck me that there were these sort of ideas out there. And I think that has been, that's been good and bad, actually. On the one hand you know, that level of things has been completely preposterous. I mean, what do you mean women can't do the same thing as men? That idea is just still to this day, is just really quite crazy to me because I haven't had it ingrained in me from an early age and I haven't noticed any difference between the way I've been treated. I don't have a brother, you know, you've met my sister. I don't have a point of reference in that sense. So that's been quite insulating, you know, walking about the world, just thinking, well, I mean, of course I can do the same thing as other people. At the same time, it's left me, rendered me sort of quite naive to things sometimes. When I speak to women who've been brought up where those gender disparities are really blatant, they're not really as shocked as I am and slightly sort of perplexed as to why I'm so shocked. Well, you know, of course a man's going to get more money in this situation because that's how it works. And I'm thinking, well, this is crazy. This is a crazy situation. Do people actually know that this gender disparity is happening? Don't they want to fix it? So I think it's been quite a late realisation for me and one I find quite shocking because I haven't had it as part of my formative life. And what about on the, the question of race? You have been listed as one of the most influential black women academics in the UK and you are among less than 1% of black women academics at Oxford or Cambridge. So have you experienced race in that context? And what led you to the career that you do now? I mean, why academia? Why sociology? Yeah, so race has been something, again, you know, growing up in an island where the vast majority of people are black, you know, the opportunity to experience racism have been minimal. So I was kind of insulated against that as well. I still find these ideas completely irrational and strange. And that's because they are. I think for me, actually, it's really difficult to dissect my experience as a woman from my experience as a black woman. I think they're often, for me, because they're happening to me, intertwined and part of the part of the same thing. They're often part of power and the way that power works and the way that people with power try to disempower other people, be it because of race, be it because of gender, be it because of socioeconomic status. And, you know, I'm also from a working class background. My mum was an NHS nurse and uh, very proud of that because I feel that, you know, when we think about people as successful, we often only imagine certain types of people to be able to do that. And so 
in terms of race and gender, I think for me, they're completely uh, intertwined. In terms of academia, I think, well, sociology, when I came from St. Kitts, I became always interested in how society works, you know. Why is it that in some places it's okay to do this thing and not really the other thing? And so really that sort of fueled my interest in, in sociology and really trying to understand how a society works. And so I didn't even really know that you could be a sociologist. I didn't know that was actually a thing. And I was really grateful to my lecturers and tutors at university to actually show me that you can actually get away from this thing that you're interested in. You know, you can actually go off and do this as a profession. And so I've been really lucky that in the sense that I've been supported in just pursuing something that I'm interested in. And so I've always felt incredibly grateful that I get paid to do something I really love. And so thinking about that and the difference that just having a different perspective, you know, a woman, a black woman, someone from a working class background at the table and asking certain types of questions, I think it's really important. And diversity comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and different people, but at the heart of it is about really trying to get access to real experiences. And on the one hand, I'm honoured that I'm in this kind of lists and people say that I'm this kind of powerful person, but I think it's it's actually a real shame. <laughs> I don't think that it should just be so few people. I really just don't. And I that, to me, is something that we can actually fix, you know, and I don't think it, it needs much effort, actually. I think it genuinely just needs a sense that this is something that matters and we all work towards that Absolutely right. And you and I met last year through the Share the Mic UK campaign where you took over my Instagram profile to a day uh, to post about the matters that most concerned you and you did post on these questions that we've been talking about now of of race and gender and spoke very powerfully. How did you find that Share the Mic experience? Well, thank you so much for letting me share your platform. As you know, I, d- I didn't have an Instagram account before. I've had very little social media. I think probably LinkedIn is the only thing. And so I was really nervous, actually. But your um, followers made me feel very welcome. And I thought, actually, if I'm going to have this one moment to be able to share the mic, and it's Black History Month, I will speak on the work of people like Dr. Nicola Rollock, Dr. Nirmal Pushra, and um, Angela um, Saini, just really about the black women in academia and our experiences, which are so often overlooked. You know, it's really, really hard to be so isolated often. And academics are particularly invested in seeing themselves as a group of people who discrimination just doesn't really affect. They don't have to think about gender discrimination much. They don't have to really think about um, race They're happy to research it, but actually to think about how it applies to how they work and their working relationships is um, something that is often completely disassociated in the way that academics think. I've often found it easier to talk to people in other industries about race and gender than I do with academics, actually, because um, academics often see themselves as, you know, on the side of the angels. So why would I need to think about this? But when you look around in the academic department, <laughs> what you see and the optics speak for themselves. And that's the outcome of lots and lots of micro level processes that produced departments that look the way that they do. I wanted to have the opportunity that you gave me with Share the Mic to really draw attention to, to some of these works. And so thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do that in on your platform and, and your followers are really kind and supportive. So. 
Uh, that's lovely to hear. Now, in the minutes that remain, I'm going to take you to the uh, questions we always conclude the podcast with. One starts with a fact, and you mentioned that academics think they're on the side of the angels. Cordelia Fine, a wonderful researcher in her book, Delusions of Gender, recorded a survey from the University of California. So she's looking at faculty fathers and faculty mothers, so people who work at a university as faculty, work full-time, and they also have children. And she finds that this leaves full-time working women with a 102-hour working week by the time they do their paid work and all of the work at home, whereas the working men with children were only putting in far less of the unpaid hours and so their working week was far lighter. They actually got to enjoy two spare hours a day compared with the working women. Are you surprised by any of that? Not in the slightest, unfortunately, especially, I mean, COVID's just completely exposed all the fault lines in that. And, you know, I'm part of kind of various support groups of women academics who we all just have WhatsApp groups where we just message each other going, this is crazy. Like, how are we supposed to function, you know, and really hoping that funders and other people really pay attention to that. So I'm absolutely not surprised by this. And I can only say that COVID and lockdown has really brought a lot of those things to a four. What's the worst misogyny you've had to face? I really think that Caroline Crescida Perez and people like Rua Benjamin have really taught me that actually the worst misogyny I'm facing is one I'm not even aware of. You know, this idea that the way that things become embedded in systems and algorithms have given us a sense that we're making choices that we don't even from options we're not even aware of. Now things are, you know, I can deal with the things I can see and feel and and react to, but what about all the stuff I'm not even privy to and that are completely invisible? So increasingly, I think the worst misogyny is actually things that we aren't even able to see that are so entrenched in the infrastructure. And that's what we really need to be paying attention to. Who's putting together these algorithms and who's having this kind of level of control of our lives? If you had all the power in the world for a moment, what would you change for women? I would change women's sense of security. I think women are living lives are often very insecure, feel very precarious. And I think for me, that's the one thing I think I would like to change for women. We always close with a quote from Virginia Woolf. What I'm going to take you to, given uh, the things that we've discussed today, is a short story that Virginia Woolf wrote, The Society, in which she wrote about a hoax. It was a hoax about British military history and involved a group of writers and artists donning beards and costumes to disguise themselves as princes and they gained access to the pride of the British naval fleet. And, in fact, one of those who boarded the ship was Virginia Woolf herself. In this short story, she writes... You must remember, fiction is the mirror of life. So that's what Virginia says. What does Patricia say? Patricia says that's such a great quote, of course, being Virginia Woolf, but it brings us to the heart of the matter, which is what we're seeing in mirrors are not necessarily real. They are reflections of things. They give us a sense of things, but we really need to not accept those things necessarily as real, but ask questions of them. So I think that... 
it being Virginia Woolf, it's a great quote. Thank you very much. In a world of fakes, I think we've had such a genuine conversation. So, Patricia, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Julia. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time.